Chapter Nineteen of One Life, One Love by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Nineteen, Daisy's Diary. When I was a child, and even last summer, I used to think a July day could not be too long, provided, of course, that July behaved as July, and one could bask in the sunshine on the lawn or on the river, and cool oneself in the shade of willows in mysterious backwaters, where the sedges are full of bloom and the lilies lie in a tangle of loveliness, lifting their milk-white cups to the warm blue sky. This year I find I am growing old, and that we can have too much even of July, a monotony of loveliness that preys upon one's spirits, a perpetual sunshine that irritates one's nerves. I have only lately discovered what it is to have nerves, and since I made that discovery I seem to have nothing but nerves. Mother asked me yesterday what had become of my sweet temper. She hardly recognized her daughter of a year ago in the fretful young person of today was i ever sweet-tempered i asked myself wonderingly i know i am very unamiable now i was snappish to my dear old broomfield this very morning i snatched my white frock out of her hand while she stood shilly-shallying and prosing about it in her dear old rambling way debating whether it was or was not fresh enough for me to wear what does it matter i cried impatiently there is nobody to see my frock nobody miss daisy when mr cyril is marching up and down by the boat-house at this very moment waiting for you cyril is nobody a fiance doesn't count said i don't he miss it was different in my time a young woman always took pains with herself when she had someone to walk out with and you used to walk out with all sorts of people i believe you dear old flirt said i for one of my earliest memories is of broomfield's long stories about soldiers and shop-boys who paraded the london parks with her in her previous services i always had admirers miss daisy but i knew how to keep them at arm's length she answered with dignity a young person in service in london must have a well-behaved young man to walk out with or she would never get a breath of fresh air oh you cruel broomfield to think of the shoe-leather your victims must have worn out you meaning nothing all the time lor miss they're used to it and it only serves them right said broomfield they're all as artful as they're high and they've always an eye to a young woman's post-office savings bank-book i encouraged the dear old thing to prattle in this fashion while she fastened my white cambric frock and i forgot poor cyril who had been loafing about for the last hour waiting for me i am afraid i am getting tired of the thames i am afraid i am developing an inconsistent capricious character how odd it is that one may go on adoring a place for years and then weary of it suddenly in one week of blazing july sunshine i hope it is only a temporary weariness caused by the hot weather fountainhead shows its usual dismal aspect of closed shutters and blinds drawn down mr florestan came in a meteor-like manner at the beginning of last week took tea with mother on tuesday afternoon while i was miles and miles up the river with cyril yawning myself to death over a silly novel while he threw his fly for trout and seemed to do nothing but entangle his line in the willows when i went down to dinner that evening mother informed me that mr florestan had done me the honour to inquire about my health as if i were ever ill and furthermore that he was to leave fountainhead early next morning on his way to scotland where he was to spend the whole of august and september i felt inclined to hate scotland how will paris get on without him i'm afraid there'll be a revolution or at least an amount i remarked flippantly 
i have noticed in myself lately that when i feel as if my heart were made of lead i am always inclined to be flippant why should my heart be heavy why oh why cyril is so frank so clever in his own bright boyish way so altogether what a young man ought to be and yet i am not satisfied there is a terrible sense of failure and a life gone wrong always gnawing at my heart mother began to talk to me yesterday about my trousseau but i begged her not to mention the odious thing for ages my drawers and armoires and hanging closets are stuffed with clothes of all kinds and how can i want more true that i never seem to have the right kind of gown to wear upon any given occasion but i believe that is a peculiarity of all wardrobes and i dare say if i had the most magnificent trousseau i should find before my honeymoon was over that i must refuse really tempting invitations for want of appropriate raiment all this is idle beating about the bush of my discontent i am engaged to be married and i shrink with actual aversion from the mere thought of the future life i have pledged myself to lead i like my lover with a very cordial liking and i am happy and at ease in his company so long as he does not remind me that he is my lover and that he expects very soon to be my husband when he does remind me of that odious fact i almost hate him just as i hate the july weather and the river and the gardens and myself most of all oh it is such a dreadful thing to know oneself beloved by a good and true heart like cyril's and not be able to give one's whole heart in return if it were not for this stupid old diary i believe i should go out of my mind it eases my heart a little to scribble about my thoughts and feelings i could not talk even to my dear mother as i can talk to this book i wonder mr florestan did not stay one day longer at fountainhead just to see us all again and to tell us the latest news of paris poor mother has anxieties of her own and it would be cruel to plague her with mine even if i could bring myself to confess all my troubled thoughts to her which i am sure i could not she is anxious about uncle ambrose and i don't wonder he is in very bad health and i fear that his mental health is in question and that seems more hopeless and more full of alarm for the future than any bodily ailment he came back to riverlawn reluctantly and i have seen him change for the worse day by day since we came here he spends all his studious hours in the old cottage sitting in the library where he has all his choicest books and where he did so much good work in past years but even in his studious hours he is restless and comes back to this house every now and then in a capricious purposeless way just to say a few words to mother or to wander about the garden for a few minutes and to stand looking dreamily at the river as if he had had some motive for leaving his books and coming across the road and had forgotten it on the way he will not admit that he is ill nor will he consent to consult a physician though mother has urged him to see any one of the great men in whom everybody believes he declares that he has never in his life consulted a doctor on his own account and that he is too old to begin i remember a sleek white-haired gentleman with gold-rimmed spectacles who felt my pulse and looked at my tongue every day for a fortnight when i had the measles he said and who dosed me with nauseous medicine three times a day and with nightly powders he gave me a poor opinion of the faculty which i have never been able to outlive it is all very well for him to make light of his ailments and to refuse all advice but i know he is ill and very ill he has a nervous irritability at times which makes him altogether unlike the uncle ambrose of old and something happened the other day which makes me fear that his nerves are in a worse condition than even mother suspects anxious though she is about him 
i was dawdling in the hall after playing tennis all the morning with cyril who really is quite the finest player i know i was examining my racket before i put it in the stand and was almost hidden by one of the oak pillars which stood between me and the library door the garden door opened while i was standing there and uncle ambrose came into the hall looking white and weary as he so often looks now he opened the door of my father's old study expecting to find my mother there clara he said as he opened the door she was not there and the room was empty he stood upon the threshold motionless for some moments the time seemed longer to me as i watched him standing there rigid as a stone figure staring into the empty room then he gave a groan of agony staggered back into the hall and sank into a chair and sat there languid almost to fainting wiping the perspiration from his forehead i could see his hand tremble as he drew his handkerchief out of his coat pocket i came from behind the pillar and ran to him he gave a cry at sight of me just as if i had been a ghost i offered to get him some brandy but he said there was no occasion there was nothing the matter with him except a passing faintness which had come over him as he opened the library door don't tell your mother he said it would only alarm her causelessly but she ought to know i told him indeed 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 uncle ambrose you must consult some clever physician you must not go on any longer like this well child i will consult a physician if my submission upon that point will make you and your mother any happier although i can tell you beforehand that no doctor in london not the whole college of physicians can do any good for me the evil i suffer from is purely nervous and no doctor has yet fathomed the mystery of the nerves any more than any theologian has fathomed the mystery of the worlds that lie behind this life or in front of it i took his hand in mine and found it as cold as ice and the perspiration kept starting out afresh upon his forehead his whole being seemed convulsed and shattered i had heard of catalepsy and i could but think that he was in a cataleptic state during those minutes in which he stood on the threshold of the library if you will promise to go up to london to-morrow with mother to see a doctor i will not tell her anything about this attack to-day i said but if you refuse i must tell her haven't i said that i will do anything to please you and your mother daisy he kept his word and mother and he went off to cavendish square and my cousins from harley street came down for a long day at tennis i can only say that it was a long day the interval between lunch and tea was a pacific ocean of time i thought the blessed break of afternoon tea would never come but the tea-kettle appeared at last and mother and her husband came home soon after she knew i was almost as anxious as herself and she told me all the doctor had said it did not seem to amount to much but no doubt it was comforting all the wisdom of cavendish square might be summed up under three heads a judicious diet as per half page of note-paper filled with a great man's writing less intellectual work and bromide of potassium the diet was the most important point according to the physician and i suppose he was right and that an injudicious helping of aylesbury duck may have been the cause of that strange seizure at the door of my father's old den cyril took his father's illness rather lightly i told him of the attack though i said not one word about it to mother my father is paying the penalty of having no fixed purpose or pursuit in life he is suffering from too much money and too much metaphysics he has a brain capable of better work than he has ever done and he is beginning to suffer from wasted energies but he has written books that have made their mark in the most intellectual circles said i yes and therefore books that the british public don't care two pence about 
books that interrogate everything and solve nothing books that leave us not one hair's breadth farther advanced towards the comprehension of the three great mysteries of matter life and mind than aristotle and plato left us three hundred and fifty years before the birth of christ some of the reviews said that your father's book marked a new era in philosophy said i my dear daisy philosophy is like the sea the waves rise and fall and change their forms every hour but the shore is always at exactly the same distance from mid-ocean i felt that it seemed hard upon uncle ambrose that the son should make so light of the labours of the father's lifetime oh i am wicked desperately wicked steeped to the lips in falsehood and dishonour he is too honourable a man to have insisted upon speaking had i been firm but the crisis of my life came upon me suddenly and i behaved as impulsively and unwisely and abominably as the most uneducated schoolgirl could have behaved i encouraged the avowal which i ought to have prevented i longed so to hear all he had to say i wanted so much to know the secret of his heart though that heart could never be mine gilbert florestan had not gone to scotland after all when i awoke yesterday morning i thought of him far away in argyleshire i pictured the barren heathery hills purple and palest green under the baking july sky as flora and dora who go everywhere have often described them to me and i thought how much nicer those wild hills above the kyles of butte must be than our pretty little toy-shop river with its willowy eyots which look as if one could hold them in the hollow of one's hand i felt such a longing for scotland yesterday morning almost as if i were homesick for a country i had never seen i began to think i must have a scottish ancestor hidden in some corner of the family tree all our fancies and vagaries are put down to heredity nowadays and certainly yesterday morning i felt scotch blood seething and bubbling in my veins but he was not in scotland mother had misunderstood him about the date of his journey or else he had changed his mind at any rate he had only gone to london to see about guns and fishing tackle for the autumn and there he was yesterday morning at eleven o'clock coming suddenly between me and the light as i sat reading alone in the summer-house in the shrubbery cyril had left us by an early train for a two days visit to a manor-house near guildford in religious observance of one of those college friendships which young men esteem so highly his friend had telegraphed to him urgently come and he went having carefully ascertained first that i did not mind how i wish i had minded more i felt a sense of relief when i saw him drive away from the gate and yet i was dull without him i missed his cheerful society which generally makes thought impossible and i sat thinking deeply in the stillness of the shrubbery where there were no birds singing any more it seemed i had books work a little sketch-block and colour-box ample means for employment or amusement and yet i sat idly thinking idly dreaming and picturing a life that was not the life i had pledged myself to lead in the midst of these vain and foolish dreams he whose image had mixed itself with all of them stood suddenly before me i looked up and saw him standing there mute and serious my guilty conscience sent the blood up to my face in a great wave of crimson i could not speak nor i think could he just at first i thought you were in scotland i said at last and i really felt as if i had achieved a brilliant remark he explained and the sound of our voices having made us both just a little more at our ease he sat down in the only empty chair and took up my books one by one and looked at their titles 
How learned you are, he said. Cousin Spinoza, read. I did not think that little girls troubled their curly heads about philosophy. I am not a little girl, I answered, huffed at this impertinence, and philosophy is my uncle Ambrose's favorite subject. He taught me all I know, and I like to read the subjects that interest him. Have you read much this morning? he asked, looking me straight in the face with a cruelly deliberate scrutiny. Again the hot blood rushed up to cheeks and brow, and I felt that he must know by my wretched blushes that I had not read a word, that I had just given over my heart and my mind to foolish thoughts of him, profitless thoughts of what might have been if I had not engaged myself to Cyril that day at Torcello, and if he, Gilbert Florestan, had happened to care just a little for me. Could any daydreams be wilder or more unbecoming a girl with the slightest notion of self-respect? I felt that I had degraded myself by my own folly and that I was hardly worthy to live. Have you read much this morning? he asked again, provokingly persistent. Not very much. If you were like me, you would not have read half a dozen consecutive lines. I have not been able to read properly for many weeks. An image comes dancing along the printed lines and dazzles me like that spectrum of the sun we see upon the page of a book after we have looked at the sun himself i have been no good for intellectual work for ever so long miss hatrell it was a relief when he called me miss hatrell for i had been trembling lest he should call me daisy it was a relief to find him properly ceremonious but i did not know how brief the respite was to be and how soon he was going to shatter the citadel of my self-respect he looked at all the books again, rearranged them methodically on the table, took up my sketch-block, and looked critically at the half-finished sketch of a group of sycamores by the bend in the opposite shore. I don't suppose he recognized them, though he must have known the originals from his boyhood. I took my little bit of embroidery out of my basket. It was one of my numerous beginnings in a new style of work which don't often go beyond the preliminary stage. I threaded my needle carefully with silk of the wrong color and began a bit of a scroll. Every stitch had to come out when I took up my work again this morning. I seem to have been color-blind yesterday. Miss Hatrell, he said at last, when is this marriage to be? I concluded that he must mean my marriage, though he put his question rather vaguely. I don't know. There is no date fixed yet. Not for ages, perhaps. Ages in a young lady's vocabulary generally mean weeks. There is no date fixed. But the marriage is fixed, I suppose. There is no doubt as to that. No, I answered resolutely. There is no doubt. There never has been any doubt. There is no room for doubt. You have never felt the slightest inclination to withdraw your promise. Such things have been done, you know, and in all honor better to discover now than later that your heart is not wholly given to your fiance better for you happier for him it is not an honourable act to marry a man you do not love only because you have promised rashly i have promised and i mean to keep my word i answered still resolute and now the crimson flush the fiery heat of that fierce shame had cooled and i could feel from the faint sickness of my sinking heart that i must have turned deadly pale I have many reasons for being true to my promise which you cannot know, motives of gratitude, motives of affection. I am not romantically in love with my fiancé. I don't think there are many romantic marriages in our day. Girls have grown more sensible. They no longer take their ideas of life from Byron and Moore. 
i knew that i was rattling on in a most ridiculous way but i felt constrained to talk it was my only means of hiding my confusion a kind of cuttlefish vivacity by which i hoped to obscure my thoughts in a cloud of words mr florestan leant his arms upon the table where my books and work were scattered and watched my face earnestly while i spoke as if he was reading the thoughts behind all my foolish babble you are not romantically in love with your future he repeated slowly but you have promised to be his wife and you mean to keep your promise you are perfectly contented with your lot i think that is the gist of what you have just said to me miss hatrell that is what you mean yes i answered stiffly that is what i mean then i can only ask you to pardon my impertinent questioning and wish you good-bye he said rising slowly and taking his hat which he had put upon the bench beside him i shall go to scotland to-night he held out his hand and i gave him mine without a word i wonder which was the colder i thought of mrs browning's simile of a little stone in a running stream ah if my hand could have lain in the hollow of his comfortably as his possession with what wild happiness this heart would have beaten we parted so with a most admirable gravity sir charles grandison and miss byron could not have behaved any better in a similar situation and then all at once as i heard his footstep grinding the gravel satan got hold of me and i ran after him i did more than run i flew he was walking very fast and i only caught him within a few paces of the gate which opens out of the shrubbery into the lane close to his own grounds mr florestan i gasped too breathless to say more he turned and faced me still with that grandisonian gravity i hope you are not angry with me i said inanely angry what right have i to be angry returned he i ventured perhaps over boldly to ask a question you have answered it frankly and there's an end whatever hope led me to you this morning is a hope that has vanished nothing less than the knowledge that you are unhappy in your engagement to mr arden would justify me in telling you what i might tell if honour would allow oh daisy daisy he cried clasping my hands and changing in one instant from sir charles grandison to the most animated and impassioned of men why do you tempt me to say what were better unsaid if if you have really made up your mind don't trifle with me don't fool me oh i think i understand you i know what women are even the best of them you are going to marry cyril arden but you would like just for sport to know how hard hit i am very hard hit daisy the arrow has gone home to its mark and it is a poisoned dart that will leave its venom in the wound for many and many a year is it not a pleasure my sweet one to know that in making one man happy you will make another man miserable no it is not a pleasure and i am utterly wretched i said and as the tears were rolling down my cheeks he could not help believing me he took me in his arms and held me to his heart and kissed my forehead and my hair kissed me cyril's promised wife and i led him out of sheer misery i was too completely broken down with woe to make a good fight for honour dear love break this foolish engagement scatter your precipitate vows to the winds it will be better for everybody for arden whom you don't care about for me who adore you and even for your sweet sweet self whose heart beats throb for throb with mine like the rival engines which will be racing to scotland through the summer night one of them carrying me away from you 
i had recovered my senses by this time and wrenched myself from his arms how cruel of you to take such advantage of my helplessness i said trying to smooth down the fluffy curls upon my poor ill-used forehead sir charles wouldn't have done such a thing sir charles he echoed doubtless thinking me mad i am very sorry that i was so foolish as to follow you i said there was really no reason for my doing such an absurd thing only i wished to part friends that means you are obdurate to both your victims you will marry arden not caring a straw for him and you will break my heart caring perhaps just a little more than a straw for me you are very impertinent for making such a suggestion i said with all the hauteur i could summon to my voice and countenance and it is very difficult for a girl of my disposition to summon any the fairy who ought to have supplied me with feminine dignity and proper self-respect must certainly have taken offence at my christening for i feel myself lamentably deficient in those qualities and i really think the want of them is worse than a spindle through one's hand worse than a spindle worse than an after-dinner nap of a century what if i were to sleep for a hundred years and gilbert florestan were to wake me in that new world which is the old ah oh, why have we no fairies now why has life no sweet surprises why has everything in my life gone wrong he did not notice my reproach is there no hope daisy he asked pronouncing my name as if he had never been accustomed to address me by any other i have told you that i mean to be true to my promise i said i am ashamed of myself for having given you the idea that i could possibly waver good-bye once more and a pleasant journey to argyleshire I did not offer to shake hands with him again. It would have seemed absurd after his terrible conduct three minutes before. I turned and ran back to the arbor as fast as ever I could go, and I opened the driest and most pessimistic of the books upon my table, and read and read and read for an hour and a half, till mother came to look for me and to tell me that the luncheon gong had sounded ever so long ago. I shut my book with a bang, and went meekly back to the house with the dear mother, and I had not the least bit of notion what I had been reading, except, like Hamlet's book, that it was words, words, words. I hated myself as I had never hated myself before, though I have been ever keenly alive to my own hatefulness, to my hideous propensity for doing or saying the wrong thing on every possible occasion. Today self-scorn was sharp as an acute bodily pain, as a raging toothache, for instance, or a gnawing rheumatism. Why had I so betrayed myself? Why had I gone out of my way to let him see that I love him, and that my fidelity to Cyril is only maintained by a struggle? That while I was dismissing him and his love as a hopeless case, I was ready to throw myself into his arms and say, Let us go to Scotland together. Let us be married by the blacksmith at Gretna Green if there is any such person as the blacksmith or any such place as gretna green left for true lovers in this unromantic age i felt that he could never more have a good or proper opinion of me i felt that if he had had a sister turn out like me he would have considered her a disgrace to the family i was more completely miserable than i had ever been since those weary days at westgate-on-sea when the misery of my father's death was a new thing and when i was parted from my mother a kind of helplessness and a dull aching sense of degradation had taken hold of me and the worst of all was that for the first time in my life i dared not confide in my mother we sat opposite each other at the luncheon-table neither of us caring to eat 
she low-spirited about my stepfather who was buried in his book-room over at the cottage i dumb and despairing when the silence was at last broken it was that dear mother of mine who broke it in just the way which of all others jarred upon my irritated nerves daisy she said it is absolutely necessary to arrive at some definite idea about your marriage cyril has been pleading with me very earnestly poor fellow he is tired of his solitary existence in chambers tired of bachelor amusements he is devotedly attached to you and he wants to begin his domestic life and then she went on in her sweet tender way which brought the tears into my eyes to remind me that though very young i am no younger than she was when she cast in her lot with my father and to tell me again as she has so often told me how completely happy her wedded life was the more she said about that perfect union the more miserable i felt until at last the tears rolled down my cheeks and my handkerchief became a mere wet rag and i felt that if i was like any bride at all it was the morning bride in somebody's play of whom all i know is that her existence gave occasion for a much quoted line about music and an overpraised descriptive passage about a temple do you think you could make up your mind to be married in the autumn daisy mother asked at last i believe she took my tears to be only the expression of a general soft-heartedness there are some girls whose eyes brim over at a tender word and not as indicative of sorrow for she asked the question quite cheerfully which autumn inquired i this coming autumn naturally why mother that would be directly no dearest we are still in july suppose we were to fix upon october for the wedding that would give us three months for your trousseau all other things are ready your charming rooms in grosvenor square and at least half this house your stepfather and i will be overhoused even then especially as ambrose does not love this place and would like to travel during some part of every year yes there is room enough for us all i said and as for the trousseau i don't care a straw about it you have dressed me so well all my life that i never hunger for new clothes it is only the badly dressed girls who are eager for wedding finery leave the trousseau to me then daisy said mother and i will take care that it is worthy of the dearest girl in the world i may tell cyril that he shall begin his new life before the end of october may i not tell him just what you like mother i answered with a heart as heavy as lead you must be the best judge of what is right i left her a few minutes afterwards to go back to the garden i felt a restlessness which made it impossible for me to stay in the house a perpetual fever and worry which seemed a part of the heavy burden that weighed on my spirits and oh i had been so happy so happy in that very garden only a year ago i want to do what is right if i made a mistake about my own feelings at torcello it is not right that another should suffer for my thoughtlessness and folly i gave my promise far too lightly it never occurred to me how solemn a thing it is to pledge one's love for a lifetime i was rather pleased to be engaged to have cyril for my own property and whenever doubtings or questionings arose in my mind i told myself that as time went on and we grew older i should grow more and more attached to him being really very fond of him in a sisterly kind of way to begin with only when we were leaving paris did i discover how dreadfully i had misread my own heart for then only did i know what love such love as mother felt for her sweetheart really means it was just in one moment in that parting at the station that the dreadful truth flashed upon me 
oh the heartache of parting the look in his eyes which seemed to plead for pity to urge me to be brave and cast off the pretence of love and own boldly to the reality he was not openly dishonourable he waited for me to break my bonds he could not know how strongly i was bound in gratitude and family love as well as in honour to cyril nobody except mother and i can ever know how much i owe to uncle ambrose no there is no possibility of revoking my promise and cyril is all that is good and true and i dare say my life will be very happy with him i have but to forget those two short weeks in paris and that one tete-a-tete cup of tea and this morning in the arbour and his face when he left me not much surely to forget seeing how much women do forget nowadays seeing how quickly mothers forget their lost children and sons and daughters their parents and the most sorrowful widows the husbands they once adored forgetfulness must be easier than it seems to one while the pangs of memory are still acute i went back to the house too restless to stay long anywhere and on my way to the hall door i was startled by a most hateful apparition in the person of that odious frenchman who attacked me in church street and who seems to have interwoven himself into our lives by his persistent appeals to my stepfather's charity i know how kind uncle ambrose is and yet i should have given him credit for more firmness of man to allow himself to be hunted down by a needy impostor of this kind the man was coming from the gate towards the hall door when we met face to face and he looked considerably abashed at encountering me ah you may well feel ashamed of yourself i said indignantly yes i am the lady you had the audacity to waylay in the street when you were tipsy you are miss hatrell he faltered looking an absolute craven yes i am miss hatrell what do you want at my mother's house i want to see my employer your stepfather he said those two words my employer in a most detestable manner implying contempt for the man for whom he had worked and by whom he had no doubt been liberally paid mr arden is over the way at his cottage i said you can go to him there if you like you will not be admitted into my mother's house he looked at me from head to foot with a very insolent expression but as his eyes met mine his countenance changed suddenly and there was more of fear than of insolence in his look his olive complexion changed to a greyish pallor and he turned on his heel abruptly muttering something which i did not hear he walked quickly back to the gate and went out and the shrug of his shoulders as he swung the gate open might mean anything in the world my study window overlooks the lane and i saw him nearly an hour afterwards leave the cottage he looked both angry and crestfallen and i fancy uncle ambrose had not proved so amenable as the applicant had expected i wonder whether he had mentioned our meeting in church street this time i think not the part he played in that encounter would scarcely recommend him to my stepfather's generosity End of chapter nineteen